previously on Popping Collars. The way that she expresses her grief is by binging on a huge, what I assume to be pumpkin pie. And she starts off eating it slowly, slowly, and then just gets more and more aggressive as it goes. But the scene itself, it's six minutes of just watching her eat that disgusting pie and the ghost is up in the corner just watching her. Um, and then she runs to the bathroom and throws up and you feel like throwing up with her because it has just been six minutes of your life that you're never going to get back. <laughs> Welcome to Poppin' Collars, a podcast that lives in the space between meaning and culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the Director of Children and Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. With me is my co-host, Ricardo Avila. Ricardo, where are you right now, and what are you up to? Greg, I am on my 1950s faux yellow sofa (laughs) uh, in beautiful Long Beach, California, (laughs) in a one-bedroom apartment that gets no cross breeze. And I have just come home from my ever exciting job as interim rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Long Beach, California. Thank you for asking. Uh, And we have a couple of special guests. First, back again for his third stint on Popping Collars, it's Eric. Oh my God. (laughs) Welcome back, Eric. Do you you know you were on three times? This is your third time. It's amazing. Remind us where you are and uh, what you're doing. Right. So um, I work in the beautiful Diocese of California. I serve on the staff of the Bishop Mark Andrus. And right now I'm in uh, my backyard in beautiful South San Francisco with the sound of the planes roaring overhead, which is why we live here. It's easy to get out of town. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, and joining us for the first time is Melissa Loya. Melissa, where are you and what do you do? I am in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm a member of Trinity Cathedral here. Uh, I have a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Old Testament, essentially, and I do some teaching. This is our 67th episode, and the topic today is The Leftovers, the recently concluded HBO series about the disappearance of 2% of the global population and the aftermath for those who are left. So specifically, uh, we're offered a glimpse into the lives of a couple of families who are dealing with the grief of loss in very different ways. It's a strange show. I don't think that's debatable. But uh, for some, it can be a frustrating show because it doesn't offer many answers and certainly not easy ones. And for other viewers, though, I think it has become a cult favorite with an extremely loyal fan base. So I'm just curious to get us started with our panel. Were you in the frustrated camp or in the hopelessly devoted camp? Uh, Melissa, do you want to kick us off? I totally signed me up from that cult. I am completely in love with the idea. You're going to dress all in white and not speak anymore. (laughs) Actually, that sounds lovely. I'm going to sign off now. I'm going to be over here with my cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and just stare yes, at us. Right. And take copious notes. Uh, I, I love the idea that the show does not, uh, does not let viewers off easy. So much of this show is about grief mm-hmm. and how people 
wrestle with it and try and push it off or embrace it and try and plow through it. Grief is completely inexplicable, right? It, when you lose someone you love or when you lose 140 million someones that you love, like in The Leftovers, you have just tons and tons and tons of questions. So I love the fact that the show doesn't, doesn't give the easy answers. I'm okay with that. I'm totally on board. I was hooked on from the start. And even when members of my family were starting to peel off, <laughs> I wanted to hold on. It's also been great sermon fodder too, especially trying to, when I, because I'm a traveling, I'm a traveling preacher. Whenever I walk into some of the older congregations where the average age is about 75 or 85, and try to explain in two minutes what is the leftovers and why I'm preaching about it. <laughs> uh, allow me to offer my opinion on that question, Greg, before we move on. Nice. I would say, and then I'd like to hear yours, Greg. I, I, if you don't say a thing that I think you're going to say, I'm going to out you and say it and say ah. you said it. So you might not know what that is. That's right. This is great. Ignite. Um, so um, I would not join the leftovers cult. I did like it. I found it fascinating, but I also found it frustrating. And not because it didn't provide answers. I found it frustrating because some of the narrative choices that were made, I found less than profound. They they, they didn't, I think, do justice to the the intensity of the of what's happened. I would say I'm on board with the leftovers. I think it was I think it may have been one of my favorite shows of all time. Actually, um, that's what I was going to out you about. I'm totally that's what with I was you. Gonna out you I'm about. totally with you on that. I think where you have to start with this show is with the disappearances. That's that's where the show starts, and that's that sets up the entire world. Nothing makes sense unless two percent of the population disappears. And, you know, the thing that is really uh, good that the show does, you know, we're never going to answer this question as to why that happened. And so many people, I think, face tragedies or face loss in their lives. And the very first question they ask is, why? Why did this happen to me? Why did God allow this to happen? Why is this uh, happening to my family? Why did this thing happen? And then another bad thing happened right after it. And I think that that's where The Leftovers is really helpful, is that we're not going to answer that question of why. And you're going to keep asking it as long as the show is on television, and we're never going to answer it. Now, I don't think that necessarily the, the, proper, the proper comment to grief is get over it. But I do think that why may be your initial question, but it may be the least important question that you ask yourself in the face of grief. And that is what I, that's what's drew me in and sucked me in and kept me on and why I'm on that train wreck cult edge of everything. Because part of me is wondering is, are they going to make the shark turn and start explaining why are they going to keep going on with real life, which is exactly what you said. We don't know why these things happen and where is God in this? Because we'll never have the explanation. We will always have the, wow, if I had turned left instead of right, the accident would have happened or I'm miss the accident because I turned left. We Our brains work through those mechanics and you can see that happening all through um, the leftovers, even when they end up in Jordan, the garden in Texas. Or the Jordan. Why this and why... River. Right. right? Why this yeah. and why, 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 why not that? But they never answer, but they never let you find out why did this happen? It's all about how we respond to grief and tragedy and loss and, and, circum and events that are bigger than we can comprehend. And we're left... And we're left behind. We're the ones who have to figure it out. 
At one point, I right. can't remember which of the Matt, you know, because Matt's got these, the, the Episcopal priest uh, character in the show has these three episodes, essentially, that are devoted to him, one in each season. And I don't remember which one of those this comes in, but uh, at one point he's talking to somebody and trying to make sense of the sudden departure. And he says, he sees it as a test. And he talks a little bit about the book of Job being his favorite. And, and that word sort of rubbed me the wrong way at first. Uh, but then he, what he says, he goes on to say, uh, it's not a test of whether we were good or bad. He sees it as a test of what comes now. And what he means by that, I think, is it's a test of how people live into this new situation and live into the grief that they're suffering. Uh, one, I want to talk about how this feels more like a natural disaster than death. Two, I want to talk about how it's not like losing a loved one in the sense that it happened to everyone, so you don't get to feel special. More like a natural disaster than a bunch of deaths happening to everyone at the same time. And in part, I saw that because it was so unexplainable. I found it, it helped me understand the show better and to see it as a natural disaster kind of parallelism going on because it happened all around the world at the same time. Nora gets to, um, I guess, feel a little more special because she lost everyone in her immediate family. But to me, because it happened at the same time to a lot of different people, people were sort of robbed of that sense of specialness when you lose a loved one and everyone comes over to your house and, you know, brings pies and casseroles and you have a funeral and everybody attends. Not that that's fun, but almost like you don't even get to grieve and have people sympathize with you as the focus of it because it's happened to three, four people on the block. How do you comfort one another when you each have your own bit of grief, including the grief of being the survivor? You're the one that got away. What about everybody else? Coming out of earthquake country where listening to the stories of all my neighbors because I missed it by six months, and they're talking about you know the people who went to Henry's Bar and Grill, they're out of everything, but the taps still work. And they went in, but they still had two volunteers from the neighborhood with fire axes by the door to make sure that the only people who came in were people they recognized. That sense mm -hmm. of danger and community solidarity and safety coming to your local or the buses that appeared out of nowhere to start driving people to the, to the other side of the bay on the long trips around the bay because the bridges were out. There's there are individuals coming together but there's no individuality anymore. It's now groups of people trying to deal with whatever happened to them. And the question for we who are, who are working in ministry is how do we minister to that? I mean, it's one thing of everything we learned in CPE of going to the hospital and taking care of a person at a time, essentially, versus getting involved in disaster ministry where we're dealing with four, five, six, tens of people at once, all needing help and all having different reactions to help. I'm just reminded again of one of the reasons that I love this show so much is that it just has the Hebrew Bible written all over it, right? I mean, it's just Old Testament Amen. trope after Old Testament trope after Old Testament trope. And it's so much of the Hebrew Bible is about the exile, right? And that's exactly this kind of communal disaster event. How people deal with that, uh, you get books like Job, you get a very different book like Ecclesiastes, you get something like Proverbs. Uh, all of these kind of post-exilic books that try and make sense of the world after it has completely fallen apart. What's really cool about this show is that there's no straight path. And the way that it comes off as art is it feels very surreal when you're watching it. So when Kevin dies, right. those those are very surreal episodes 
when you're experiencing his afterlife, alternative life. Yeah, his international assassin life, which you just kind of have to go with. You do. Because that's how he's going to tell this story of his disaster. And and I think that... I think that uh, surreal pop art is good. I think that it's ultimately good for us because it allows us to to recognize that not everything has to have this clean, clear path. Not everything has to be act one, act two, act three. There are other ways of telling stories. I think the God figure right, right. even says at one point, doesn't he, somewhere in there, that the, the character that is God, right? That kind of like Henri, enigmatic, is he God, is he not God? He even says at one point to somebody, you can't think in straight lines, right? So this show is definitely not, <laughs> not giving you a treatise on grief in straight lines. Kevin's deaths, none of it mattered. Like, it, 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 it didn't matter if he was a messiah or not a messiah, or if he got the dance or didn't get the dance um, at the end to stop the flood. It didn't matter if there was a flood. It didn't matter if... it. And, and this is the real key part. It didn't matter if Nora actually went through the machine or didn't um or just of, she had or thought she had or, just or said, she had yeah. or just told kevin a story what? yeah yeah like it didn't matter like it wasn't that's what nora needed to say to kevin in that moment was that she saw the other side and everybody was happy but that doesn't mean that it was true and i think that that's that's what i actually kind of like about the show <gasps> Anyway, sorry. For me, there's this sort of... (laughs) I can see your mind is blown. Um, For me, there's this kind of key moment in the show that... that, I mean, I loved the show before this moment, but after this moment, I thought, oh, that's what this is about. And it's all it's ever going to be about. And it's amazing. Uh, It's that moment when, um, you know, Matt... Again, a Matt episode, when he sees the man up on the taco truck in the stocks... And you know, the, stock, the stocks have repent written on the front of them. And the guy's naked and dirty and just suffering and has been abused by the people that are keeping him up there. And he sees him at first and he asks the lady, like, what is going on? She says, well, if you want him to get him, come down, you have to take his place. And eventually he comes back around at the end of the episode and he decides that's what I'm going to do. And for really, for no discernible reason... He walks up to this woman and says, I'm ready. I want to take his place. And she says, why? And he says, because it's my turn. And there's something about that moment of just, he just lays it bare. He wants to share in that suffering. He kind of take the place of this man. We don't know why. And we don't know for how long. This idea that the kind of grief, the suffering that comes from grief that all these characters are going through is the only way through it is uh, together. And to the, that burden has to be shared. That, in some way, is the key to the show for me. Melissa, you brought up the very episode, the, the episode I preached on, which, A, there's the maybe the incredibly obvious uh, Christ image there that he was going to atone for everyone. Mm-hmm. But he recognized that it was his turn, that he had to atone for himself first. So he had to become the person in the stocks. He was going to suffer like the Christ like the Christ at the end of the, if I remember correctly, the sequence, you know, they kind of sort of leave him alone late at night and he can come out and, and start again in the morning. It's almost, it's almost like it's um, a passion play. We're going to do this, but we get to, and this is the part you play, but at the but at the end you get to go home and have a beer and you get to start all over again. That actually leads me to what I wanted to talk about next, which is the idea of healing, because I think that that's what 
when we talk about Nora getting shot by prostitutes and when we talk about her subjecting herself to this machine, just all of this stuff, it just seems like a search for healing. She just wants to be whole again or she wants to feel better. Kevin just wants to feel better. He just wants a dog and he just wants like, he wants his wife to quit this crazy cult. And, you know, he wants his kids to be okay. Everybody just feels like they are in need of healing on this show. And it makes me think about how we use that word in our world. I know that at Bethesda, we have healing services And I don't necessarily think that it's about physical healing. I don't think it's about replacing something that we feel like is wrong with you or is absent in you or anything like that. It's something about giving you peace of mind, giving you some kind of feeling of purpose, some kind of feeling of strength, some kind of feeling of hope. Yeah, You know, especially the Jordan season two with the with the images of water and the Jordan and bathing and being baptized in that water and that that water is somehow a miracle for this town. I think that there's a lot about healing on this show and I think it's on purpose. I hadn't clearly thought through what I what I thought was going on with Kevin's forays into this what like the hotel of the dead or <laughs> or the other place that he goes when he essentially kills himself again and again, and is raised up. But listening to you talk about healing, it feels like it feels like that was a place for him where he went to work out some stuff that he needed to work out. Especially in those last few episodes of season three, when he goes to that place, he has to wrestle with, wrestle with himself. He has to uh, confront some hard truths about uh, who he is and the fact that he always wants to run from intimate relationships. So I, I don't know if, if that's what he was up to in those instances of going to this other place and trying to heal himself a bit and coming back better than he was before when he left. Incrementally better each time. We have a Thursday morning healing Eucharist at our church. And uh, we rotate uh, among the clergy who, who, who does the service. And uh, there's a point when I do it, well, we all do it, where people come up to the little altar rail in the chapel and I pray with them and then anoint them with the sign of the cross on their forehead. And um, I am very specific with them. I ask them, is there, is there anything you want to pray for? And they'll mention themselves and their pain or a loved one who's sick or someone else in the parish or a situation. And the people who are around them who've just been prayed for before and who are about to be prayed for after kind of put their hands on their shoulders while I pray with them. So it's like a communal thing. And to me... As I thought of that image and what you were saying, it occurs to me that part of healing in terms of being a priest, you know, I can't heal people. Like someone says, I I have vertigo. I don't cure vertigo, but I can listen and they can express their pain and feel heard. And then there's also the presence of the community also hearing that. And so I'm just trying to say maybe part of what happens with healing is your pain being acknowledged and knowing that there are others who are with you as you acknowledge it, who care about you. We are healers and we're not healers. We are not medical specialists, except for those who did do their MD and RN work and then entered full-time ministry or part-time ministry even. But what certainly is, is how are we treating our psyche? And I still keep going, going back to Kevin putting the bag over his head or the 
teenagers who were you know in their little little group orgy things and trying to strangle each other at the same time you know that they were you know, riding on the edge of death trying to find a way to connect with something else and to find a place that ha that's uh, water is always associated with miracles right this is this is baptism um, and the change that comes with baptism that we are not that after baptism we are not who the people who we were even in the bodies that we have and the infirmities that we have that somehow we can still get better although nothing may change physically we will get better our minds will get better we'll find another way to be a different person a changed person out of the healing um i know ricardo i know exactly what you mean uh, i you know my touch of serving my priestly ministry as a holy bureaucrat is being part of a healing uh, healing prayers uh, mass at 7.30 in the morning on Wednesdays, like clockwork, the same four to, four to eight people show up, we say the same prayer, we still lay hands after the Eucharist. And there's something about the community that is built there because they feel they, it's not anything I say as much as it's what they are to each other as they lay hands on each other. My anointing with oil, because I'm the guy then cutting the collar and have a double O license that allows me to do that, means some means one thing. But I think the real strength that they have is that they have each other. They found a way to be with each other. When Kevin and Nora get together, part of that is that in some ways it is their own healing that they found two people to actually be vulnerable to each other, and that itself is healing. As you were all were talking, I guess I hadn't thought about healing as a theme in the show but suddenly all this stuff kept popping up <laughs> and like how Lori, his ex-wife yeah. and John get in cahoots to basically scam people into healing. Right? <laughs> no, that's great. I, that is at first I was like, well, that's not right. And then I thought it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the assurance you can never get because it's not really there. And they're providing it in a fake way. And I think and it, it shows, shows the him. trick. Yeah. And, and it shows him as completely healed too, right? Because he starts out as this like ultimate skeptic. He's, a, he's such a skeptic. He's a bully about it. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, right, that he, I hadn't thought of it in those terms either, but he himself is, is so healed by his relationship with Lori, by seeing Kevin raised up after he shoots him he's able to offer healing to other people. Right. And just how ironic, how wonderfully ironic it is that he was, I mean, he was more than a bully. He was like, a, he, he hurt people and right. burned their houses down because they purported to offer miracles. And he refused to believe that miracles existed to turn around full circle and actually concoct fake miracles to do what he was <laughs> fighting against, but realize the efficacy of that. You know, I I don't mean to be heretical here, but how much of that is what a priest does? You know, <laughs> not that I don't believe in what I'm saying, but that um, people will hear what they need to hear in order to find some grace. It's all of these glimpses of faith and, and who has it and who doesn't and who stumbles into it and who has more than they need of it it's such it's such a great show
So uh, we have come to the part of our show where we do staff picks. And that's where one of our hosts or guests, if our host can't think of anything, <laughs> or one of our host hosts will recommend... Host is sick and hard. Will recommend a piece of pop culture. And I have it on good authority... Uh, from earlier this week that Ricardo has something that he would like to share with us. <laughs> Ricardo, what well, is as a your, matter of fact, I, what is your staff pick? Hey, Greg, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I do have a staff pick. I have two, but they're thematically linked. Uh, first of all, I have just started rereading and I highly recommend the Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she was a writer in the fifties and sixties, I believe and died early of lupus. And she is a sort of Southern Gothic, Roman Catholic. I am not going to give you a nice, neat story. I'm going to give you some nastiness mixed with religion, pain, and moments of ecstatic joy. If you've never read the short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, you have to read it. Have you guys read that? Mm-mm. Yes. It's great. Oh. Okay. It's just, why is this happening? It's like violent and redemptive at the same time and yet neither I, I can't explain it but all of her a lot of her stories are like that and there are some images that just sear into your mind i actually have read her complete stories so some of the this one i'm about to mention might not be in a good man it's hard to find but i would start there first there's a there's a woman she's lonely she has a fake leg and this kind of shyster comes through town and um romances her and gets her up into the hay loft i want to say uh, it's been a while since I read this one and um, makes out with her and et cetera and steals her leg. Mm. What is that? So- like loneliness and romance and the price you pay for giving your heart to someone or was she sinning by fooling around with him? I mean, it's messed up and wonderful. There's also, I have been haunted and in love with a CD that came out. I think it was last year. Uh, it's by Sufjan Stevens, kind of indie, kind of sort of religious guy, uh, music guy called Carrie and Lowell. And it's a, those are the names of his parents and his mother kind of up and left the family at some point. Uh, she couldn't handle it. And he has carried that grief with him. And this is the first time he's really fully expressed it. And the music is haunting and beautiful. And yet some of the songs are like about suicide and despair and giving up. So you're kind of, you're lulled in by the pretty banjo playing or guitar picking. And yet he's, when you listen to the words, he's like, the only thing that keeps me from driving this car off the cliff right now is that I look up at the stars and I see signs and wonders and somehow they carry me through. So there's that whole not easy answers, beauty, and yet violence and despair all mixed in. And that's the kind of art I love. Yeah. It's provocative and it is, um, it's beautiful and poignant, but it, it doesn't let you off the hook with, you know, an easy solution. So Sufjan Stevens CD, Carrie and Lowell is beautiful. And Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find short story collection. All right. Staff picks for me. There you go. Wow. Books and music rarely featured in our staff picks section. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. That's why I'm here. (laughs) That makes us classy. We always look to Ricardo to keep us classy. (laughs) That says a lot about you. (laughs) I'm sorry. All right. You can find Popping Colors on the web at poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash poppingcollars, or on Twitter at poppingcollars.com. 
You can even find us on Instagram. And we have a Spotify playlist. We have so many things. You can find our show uh, wherever you get your podcasts. All we ask is that you rate, review, subscribe, uh, so that more people can find us. I was going to say, Greg, didn't you say once that they, they can find us on Stitcher as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Or where, yeah, there you go. Melissa's <laughs> jumping <laughs> in on this thing. You can also find us yeah. on EpiscopalCafe.com. Uh, we love EpiscopalCafe.com. We know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news, needs, and beyond. And with that... That is Popping College for this time. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Ricardo, for coming on the show. And we will see you next time. Keep those collars popped. <laughs> <laughs>